I'm Susan Moran. And I'm Tom McKinnon. This is How on Earth, the show that makes you smarter. Today is Tuesday, July 10th, 2012. Coming up, a geologist talks about the promises and perils of injecting carbon dioxide deep underground as a way to curb greenhouse gas emissions. And we talk to Wayne Greenberg about how the entrepreneurial spirit can help the economy and the environment at the same time. The Cleantech Fellows Institute is a unique new program for Colorado, helping to accelerate startup companies in renewable energy and clean technologies. We begin with a look at some of the recent news in science. From the History Vault, 50 years ago today, in 1962, Telstar, the world's first communication satellite, was launched into orbit. And on July 10th, 1925, 87 years ago, the Scopes trial was held in Dayton, Tennessee. In the so-called monkey trial, John T. Scopes, a young high school science teacher, was accused of teaching evolution in violation of the Butler Act. The attack on science teachers who teach evolution continues to this day. And 15 years ago today, in 1997, scientists reported their DNA analysis from a Neanderthal skeleton. The findings supported the out-of-Africa theory of human evolution. While rain has blessed Colorado for the first few days of July, last month the lower 48th as a whole experienced its 10th driest June on record. It rained only 2.27 inches on average, more than a half inch below the national average. Precipitation totals across the country were mixed in June. Record or near-record dry conditions plagued much of the inner mountain west. On the other hand, Tropical Storm Debbie dropped record rainfall across Florida. The new data come from a monthly analysis from the National Climatic Data Center, which is part of NOAA, or the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. As of July 3rd, 56% of the lower 48 suffered drought conditions. That's up from 37.4% at the end of May, making it the largest drought footprint of the 21st century. Drought conditions worsened across the southwest central plains and the Ohio Valley, but they improved across Florida due to the rains from Tropical Storm Debbie. Nationwide, last month also ranked the 14th warmest June on record, two degrees above the 20th century average. Colorado had its warmest June on record, with a statewide temperature 6.4 degrees Fahrenheit above average. Needless to say, the super dry, warm, and windy weather last month created ideal wildfire conditions, especially in the West. Nationwide, wildfires scorched over 1.3 million acres, the second most on record during June. June temperatures also contributed to a record-warm first half of the year and the warmest 12-month period the nation has experienced since record-keeping began in 1895. A hormone with anti-diabetic properties also reduces depression-like symptoms in mice and could hold therapeutic potential for humans. That's according to a new study published in this week's Proceedings at the National Academy of Sciences. Previous studies have shown that people with type 2 diabetes have an increased risk of depression, and all types of current antidepressants increase the risk of type 2 diabetes. The study's senior author, Dr. Shen Yun Lu of the University of Texas in San Antonio, said the findings offer a novel target for treating depression, especially in individuals who have type 2 diabetes or who are at a high risk for developing it. The researchers tested whether a hormone called adiponectine plays a role in depression. The hormone is secreted by adipose tissue, and it sensitizes the body to the action of insulin. 
In the Texas study, mice were subjected to 14 days of repeated social defeat stress, basically being harassed by an aggressive bully mouse. Defeated mice displayed lower adiponectine levels. What's more, compared with normal mice, mice genetically deficient in adiponectine were more susceptible to depression-related symptoms. Mice that were fed a high-fat diet developed obesity and type 2 diabetes, but when they were given adiponectine, these mice, and not mice of normal weight, produced antidepressant-like effects. You're listening to How on Earth, the KGNU Science and Technology Show. I'm Susan Moran. As levels of carbon dioxide from coal plants, automobiles, and elsewhere continue to skyrocket, researchers have been scrambling on many fronts to find reliable ways to curb emissions of the most persistent greenhouse gas. One of the approaches is called geologic carbon sequestration, trapping CO2 from power plants and other sources and pumping it thousands of feet underground in rock formations. Some research findings look promising, but the practice has also drawn controversy, particularly over the safety and permanence of pumping and storing CO2 underground. One of the more unusual research projects is in Illinois. Researchers are taking CO2 that's used in the fermentation process for producing ethanol at a large corn processing plant. They're then injecting the CO2 deep underground in the Illinois basin. To discuss the project and its implications, we have on the phone from Illinois, Dr. Robert Finley, a geologist with the Illinois State Geologic Survey and the University of Illinois. He's directing the project. Dr. Finley, welcome to How on Earth. Thank you, Susan. Glad to be here. So first, why don't you bring us right there to Decatur, Illinois, and talk about, in a nutshell, the project itself. Well, what we've been doing is we've been working on the Illinois Basin since 2003 to understand whether or not geological carbon sequestration can be done safely and effectively. And we've been studying a site in Decatur, which is in east central Illinois, about three hours drive south of Chicago, uh, particularly because the geology looks very favorable and because we have a source of carbon dioxide, which comes from the production of fuel ethanol, as you pointed out earlier. So first, what makes the geology favorable there? Well, you have to have two things. You have to have a porous rock, like a sandstone, that can serve as a reservoir to store the CO2, kind of like a kitchen sponge. It's full of holes between the sand grains in which we can pump the carbon dioxide. And then you have to have a reservoir seal, and this is a different type of rock, a clay-rich rock, a shale, that has very little porosity and permeability, and therefore it keeps the carbon dioxide in the ground. But do you want it not so porous that it could potentially leach into uh, aquifer and eventually groundwater? Well, of course, yes, but the depth difference is huge. The groundwater in this area is at a depth of 140 feet, and we are injecting at a depth of 7,000 feet, and we and the shales that are separate the surface from the CO2 reservoir are hundreds of feet thick. And then talk about the, the fuel itself. You said you're there at Archer Daniel Midland, which is a far cry from, say, a coal-fired power plant where some of the experiments are happening. What, what about the corn or, and the, the fermentation process makes it well, good as, as CO2? Well, as you know, um, Congress has mandated that we have uh, put a certain amount of uh, renewable fuel into our gasoline supply. And ethanol is produced, in this case, from corn, 
But it is also a situation where the University of Illinois and others, for example, are looking at other kinds of material, wood waste, uh, various types of cellulosic waste material that in the future could substitute for the corn and that we could still use to produce ethanol through this fermentation process. Substitute for the corn partly because of the food versus fuel debate and the, exactly. the questionability about whether it's really helping to reduce greenhouse gases? Yeah. Well, clearly the carbon dioxide that is produced as a byproduct of fermentation, those carbon, uh, that carbon comes from the corn plant and is fixed from the atmosphere. But it would be far better, of course, if we could use these cellulosic materials, as is very likely in the future. Right now, it's important for us because we can use our scarce research dollars to focus on the geological aspects of this and really not have to go through the expensive separation of carbon dioxide, say, from the flue gas of a power plant. So could we do it at, say, the Coors Power, or the Coors Power Plant, the Coors um, Beer Producing Plant? I mean, any fermentation process? Yes, any fermentation process where you're fermenting sugars to uh, produce ethanol, yes, you can use the CO2 if you can capture it effectively and you have enough of it, you can certainly do that, yes. So it, it seems like much of the issue is quantity and, and easy access. Right. Quantity and easy access and, of course, co-locating, in this case, as we've done in Decatur, locating a good source of CO2. And we are currently injecting 1,000 metric tons per day on our way to a total injection of a million tons. Locating a good-sized source of CO2 in an area with favorable geology. Sounds like a lot, a thousand metric tons a day, working towards it one million. Could you give some comparison? What does that mean in terms of potential ability to, to capture CO2, say, from... Well, a, sure, a small or a medium-sized coal-fired power plant, say a 500-megawatt coal-fired power plant, would put out about three, maybe three and a half million metric tons a day. The important thing is that our experiment at Decatur is scalable. It's not so small that we can't understand the processes, but it's not so large that we uh, need uh, to spend a large amount of money on doing the research. So what are the findings so far you're getting from there? Well, we started injecting on the 17th of November last year after doing four years of uh, work on the site to make sure that there were no faults or fractures and so forth. And so far, we've put 200,000 tons of carbon dioxide in the ground, and uh, the reservoir is performing very well, and uh, it is uh, the CO2 is pretty much behaving as predicted. And Meaning it's staying is, uh, contained, and it's, well, first of all, you can inject it, and, it, and it's staying where it should stay? Correct, exactly. We have not only the injection well, we have another well in which we're actually sampling above the shale seal at a depth of about 5,000 feet so that we would be able to assure ourselves that it's not getting through that shale seal. And so far the record looks good, you're saying? So far the record looks good, but we've got another two and a half years of injection to get to the million tons, and then we've got three years of intensive monitoring after we stop injecting to make sure that we understand the processes of where the CO2 is and where it, uh, to make sure it's staying in place as we expect. And give us some of the um, 
Just more of the national context. I know the Department of Energy is funding several projects throughout the states, but as far as I know, this is the only one working on corn ethanol, right? Right. It is uh, is the only one that is actually coming from a biofuel source, and that, as I said, is the juxtaposition of having these these thousand tons of CO2 available being provided to us by Archer Daniels Midland and the geology being right there on site, basically being able to inject very close to their plant. That also helps reduce our research uh, costs. The big picture is that... um, As the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, the IPCC, has said, we need multiple technologies, a portfolio of technologies, if you will, to address the climate change issue. So we need to use renewables. We need to improve energy efficiency. We need to use potentially lower carbon fuels. But they have assessed that uh, carbon sequestration, geological carbon sequestration, can contribute to about 20% of the reduction in carbon dioxide emissions that they believe we need to achieve by 2050. So uh, there's a lot of uh, discussion as to what technologies we would use, but I firmly believe that, and the IPCC uh, suggests this also, that we need a portfolio of approaches in order to reach uh, CO2 emission reduction goals. But 20% reduction is, is pretty huge as the so-called wedges go. Yes, absolutely. It, it is, and it's going to require multiple projects, and it's going to require uh, a lot of work to get there. And that's all assuming everything goes as best as as could be. What about some of the safety and environmental concerns? I know um, there was a report last month by the National Academy of Sciences that kind of downplayed the potential risks of seismic activity from man-made causes, particularly injecting some kind of fluid. Uh, What's your take on that? Well, uh, as they indicated in their report, there's more work to be done on this. We have microseismic monitoring in place at Decatur, so we are able to uh, provide data as we go forward over the next uh, two and a half years of injection that will help uh, us evaluate this question. Whenever you inject fluid into the subsurface, you have to inject it at a location where you fully understand the geology and the subsurface. That's why it took us uh, almost four years of work at Decatur doing geophysical work, uh, creating images of the subsurface based on sound waves uh, sent into the earth so that we could assure ourselves that this was a, a safe place to do this. And essentially, going forward, this what we are doing at Decatur creates a model of best practices that can be used at other sites around the country. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. I appreciate it. One one quick final question is where can people go to find out more about this particular project or in general, the um, geologic carbon capture? Well, we have a website for our project called sequestration.org, sequestration.org. And uh, you can go to our website for updates on our work. And there are also plenty of links there to the U.S. Department of Energy sites and other sites around the world where researchers are carrying out this kind of work. Great. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. That was geologist Dr. Robert Finley, principal investigator of the Illinois Basin Decatur Project. 
It's not news that we're in an economic downturn, nor is it news that the world is facing monumental environmental problems. How about a way to kill two birds with one stone? Our guest in the studio is working on exactly that angle. Wayne Greenberg is the director of the Fellows Institute, sponsored by the Colorado Clean Tech Industry Association. Wayne is also a serial entrepreneur, with his most recent venture being a company focused on building energy efficiency. He's the former president of eSource here in Boulder and was the associate dean of the Tulane Law School. Wayne, welcome to Hell on Earth. Thank you, Tom. Good to be here. Wayne, before we get to a discussion of the Fellows Institute, uh, uh, tell us a little bit about the Colorado Clean Tech Industries Association, or CCIA. Uh, CCIA was formed in late 2008 uh, as an industry association in Colorado to address the needs of the array of clean technology industries under that umbrella. It currently consists of about 200 organizations, and its primary mission is around jobs, job creation, job development, and economic development. Okay, so now let's uh, move on to the, the Fellows Institute uh, that you're the director of. Um, what is it? What motivated you to take on this project? And, um, and what does CCIA hope to achieve with it? Over the last 15 years, we've seen in the clean technology and renewable energy industry a number of failures. There are huge opportunities, but there are also massive difficulties that face entrepreneurs in trying to create clean technology companies. Uh, most of the clean technology companies that we see uh, re rely on products that have to be in the marketplace, that have to withstand the test of time, that have to be warrantyable in the field. Uh, there are huge costs typically involved in the scaling up of these companies, and it requires a certain level of entrepreneurial DNA. So our view is that we can attract executives from other industries who've been successful in their careers who now want to turn their skills and attention to clean technology and renewable energy. By introducing them to the ecosystem around clean tech and the technologies in clean tech, we feel we can accelerate the creation of more companies and more successful companies in this arena. And so how many uh, fellows will you be taking into the Institute this year? The first year class will have between 12 and 15 exceptional entrepreneurs involved in the program. Now, there's a lot of hands-on personal attention, and so for a first go, 15 is the maximum we can handle. Well, and how long will this program run? The program begins uh, September 17th, and the first class will graduate in early January, so approximately 17 weeks. Huh. It's an executive education format, so seven of the weeks the fellows will be in Colorado, uh, and the remainder of the weeks they'll be operating virtually, building business plans around the technologies we'll be introducing them to. And have you already selected the fellows? Uh, we have not. Uh, July 27th uh, is the final date for applications, and we'll be, we'll be accepting the class uh, in a week to two weeks after that deadline date. Okay, and do, do the uh, potential fellows uh, need to be ready to quit their day jobs, or is this a night and weekend activity? Uh, our expectation is that the vast majority of the fellows will actually be in between something. We'll have sold a company, we'll be operating as a consulting CEO, perhaps, or an entrepreneur in residence for a venture firm, uh, or perhaps retired and looking to get back into the job market. A good example of one of our applicants is a 52-year-old retired uh, medical technologist who sold a pharmaceutical company last year, and he's now looking for the next thing to do. He, in many ways, is a prime candidate for us. Okay, let's step back a bit and look at the uh, big picture. So regarding jobs and economic development, which, of course, is uh, top on people's minds uh, these days, uh, what's the track record of startups in general and, in particular, clean tech startups at uh, creating jobs and, and boosting the economy? 
Well, in the United States, uh, startup companies um, actually account for the majority of jobs and of newly created jobs. Uh, so we feel this is a, a key part of the economy. Uh, clean technologies, and again, that's, that's 13 potential industries that you can name that fall under the umbrella of clean technology. Uh, transportation companies, energy efficiency companies, wind, solar, biofuels. Uh, all of those industries have been very successful over the last dozen years at creating economic activity in the United States, and we believe that's going to continue. The Rocky Mountain Institute here in Boulder has estimated that there's a $5 trillion, that's with a T, trillion-dollar economy uh, available to us over the next 30 years in renewable energy and clean technologies, and that's one of the trends we hope to take advantage of. And a good chunk of that will be in Colorado? Uh, we believe so. Colorado is certainly one of the top three states in the United States for renewable energy and clean technology. We're mentioned typically in the same sentence as Silicon Valley and Boston, Massachusetts. Okay. Uh, so uh, to get these companies off the ground, they need capital, which is in, in short supply, and people often say that climate is uh, not good in Colorado for that. Uh, do you see this as a limitation, and can CCIA, CCIA uh, uh, do anything to help? Well, this is a national program, and as such, we have gathered a group of approximately 18 national venture capital firms into the ecosystem, and our belief is that as we develop this pool of very top-notch executive talent and a pool of first-class technologies, the venture capitalists will be quite involved. Our look back a year from now is what we hope to see companies formed and them being venture-backed. That is the goal of the program. Okay, and you're intending to uh, keep this going more than one year? Absolutely. This is a pilot program. Our hope is that uh, within a couple of years we'll see multiple, uh, multiple incidences of this regionally and perhaps being offered multiple times a year. Okay. Well, Wayne, uh, we're just about out of time. Uh, is there uh, one or more websites you could uh, point our listeners to to find out more? Absolutely. www.cleantechfellows.com is our website, and there's complete information there about the curriculum, the offering, the speakers, and, of course, an application page. Okay. And just since the uh, deadline is coming uh, due soon, can you repeat that date? That is July, Friday, July 27th uh, at midnight. Okay. <laughs> Wayne, well, thanks for being on How on Earth. Thank you very much. That was Wayne Greenberg, the director of the Fellows Institute, sponsored by the Colorado Clean Tech Industry Association. That's all for this edition of How on Earth, the show that makes you smarter. This week's show was produced by me, Susan Moran, and was engineered by Jim Pullen. Susan Moran is also our executive producer. The theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Additional music from Paul Odette. Can't listen to How on Earth at our regular time? No worries. Just go to howonearthradio.org and subscribe to our podcast using the iTunes button. Questions or comments? Call the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Tom McKinnon. And I'm Susan Moran.